the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to this wet Wednesday for the 27th day of January. Trust you're doing your best to stay high and dry. And uh, if you're heading home tonight on the wet roads around the Bay Area, be extra cautious. A lot of rain certainly yesterday in many communities, particularly down in the fire damage sections of Santa Cruz County, just reeling from all of this water. It's one of those mixed blessings. We need it, and yet it's creating so many problems. And, of course, watching the road ahead, critically important. So um, drive safe as you enjoy the program tonight. We're awfully glad that you honored us by um, tuning our way, and we're going to hope to uh, make the next couple of hours um, high-quality time for you. We're going to talk a little bit later on in this hour about the impact of unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats that in the last 20 years have placed, ready for it, 88,899, oh, let's round it off and call it 89,000 rules and regulations on the books in the last 20 years that affect your life and my life, and not one of them put into place by an elected, accountable individual who answers to the people. We'll find out why. We'll be joined later on by Todd Gazialmo. He, of course, is the director of the Pacific Legal Foundation Center for the Separation of Powers. That should be a compelling conversation, to be sure. In the wake of COVID-19, we know that there are well over 2 million souls that have been lost. The impact on the economy and small business continues to be felt and will no doubt cause people to reel under the weight of all of this for a long, long time to come. But there's another group that's suffering because of COVID that you're not hearing from nor about, and yet they numbered nearly 40 million worldwide. Who are these people? How can we make a difference for them? K.P. Yohannan, founder and director of Gospel for Asia, joins us. But as we lead off the conversation tonight, the arena of political correctness and so-called cancel culture alive and well right here at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. We learn more as we're joined by the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Pete Peterson. Pete, always great to have you with us. Hello, Pete. Yes, I'm here. Great to be back with there you. There you are. There you are. <laughs> hey, great to have you with us as well, Pete. Now, i got to ask you right, right up front. You are heralded in many corners as an educator, a respected thought leader, and, of course, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Please tell me that in, I don't know, 2051, 30 years from now, we're not going to hear stories about how your name has been tarnished because you pull little... Sally Sunshine's pigtails in the second grade. We're not going to hear that about you, are we? <laughs> Boy, I certainly hope not, Craig. But 
<laughs> this story that we're here to discuss uh, regarding the school district in, in San Francisco and the naming of uh, various over 40 schools really does point to the greater issue that you've just put your finger on, which I, I really do believe is uh, something worth discussing either now or at some point, uh, because I'm beginning to see it actually in the lives of our graduate students, um, which is frankly this fear in this age of social media and this broader topic of cancel culture, um, frankly, a, a fear and an unease that at some point somebody will find something out about me, either true or taken out of context. Uh, it could have been something that happened for a minute or a second, but it was captured in a certain way in video or audio or some such way um, that will come back to haunt me. And I think especially we as people of faith who believe in a, in a God and a Savior who is uh, forgiving and merciful <laughs> need, to be, need to be promoting that message to a culture uh, that has shown itself to be rather merciless um, and in ways that I think are, are, are deeply, deeply disturbing. I would agree. And maybe one of the big watchwords that's missing from this entire debate is the word perspective. Now, let me put this in context for listeners. Um, no, I, there's no rumors afoot uh, that uh, Pete Peterson pulled the uh, pigtails of Lily, a little Sally uh, Seashore uh, in, in, in the second grade. At least none that we're aware of yet. Uh, but we do know to a certainty that by a near unanimous vote just this week, the San Francisco Board of Education... Um, after a debate that's been raging for well, probably well over a year, uh, has decided to pull the names of some 44 schools across the San Francisco Unified School District. These are names and individuals that one time we thought were important enough to honor by naming a school after them, but today have decided that they no longer make the grade. And, and you know, what I find shocking about this, Pete, and you kind of alluded to it, this notion that we're looking for every minor flaw, that we're not only going to run the risk of erasing those whom at one point we felt were worth honoring, but where do we see an end to this that we don't ultimately say, well, not only are they not worth honoring, they're not even worth talking about, so let's just completely erase them in its entirety from history. Now, we know certainly in San Francisco, Abraham Lincoln, he's out. Washington right. is out. Even yeah. Diane Feinstein, our, 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 our much reveled and revered uh, and, and, and reviled um, member of the United States Senate from San Francisco, she's out. Uh, in her case, her sin was allowing the Confederate flag to fly at City Hall 37 years ago, back in 1984. Now, I've got to ask you this to put perspective on it, Pete. Um, we're looking or grading historical figures based on modern standards or measures of political correctness, to which I would suspect 30 or 40 years from now, none of us will be immune. I have to wonder if we look at somebody like Roosevelt and say, well, he didn't do enough for the handicap, so he's out. Um, right. Martin Luther well, King, well, Japanese he plagiarized parts of his right? doctrinal I mean, dissertation, so we need to take King out of the picture. Churchill advocated the use of chemical weapons. He's out. Even Gandhi, 
Even Gandhi, we can't revere him anymore either because he allowed the Indian caste system to stand. I mean, at what point do we say enough is enough? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, this revisionist history, um, I mean, there are two things at play here, as I see it, Craig. One is the decision that was made and then the way that decision was made. So let me just say, as somebody uh, could be considered a more of a, a Reagan or a classical conservative, if the San Francisco School District, uh, with its seven elected members, uh, wants to vote 6-1 for themselves uh, to remove these names, it should certainly have the right to do that. Now, I hope that those council members, who are no doubt elected officials, uh, will be held to account by the voters, and maybe the voters support and approve that, in which case the council members will be returned. But if they're not, at least they will be held accountable. The broader issue, of course, is how are we remembering and understanding the past, and are we using standards that we're frankly not willing to put ourselves under? And again, that's, mm. that's the broader topic to me, Craig, which as, as we are here as a graduate school and we have 20-somethings, you know, they're, they're now Gen Z uh, that are coming up and coming through the graduate school here. I, I really am deeply concerned about an environment, a culture that they're growing up in that often has them suspicious about what might be coming next in this cancel culture, a text, a, a picture, a something in a yearbook uh, that can come back to haunt them uh, years later, and we've we've seen evidence of this, as you know, Craig, all over the country. And uh, I think if we're going to continue to practice this merciless cancel culture, uh, we'll continue to have what I call this eggshell environment, where students are always, uh, and young adults are always deeply concerned about what might be revealed in their future. Well, the other thing, too, that dawns on me, uh, having been a radio talk show host for more than 30 years now, um, I'm, I'm uh, willing to lay odds that there is a whole, <laughs> a whole and long list of stupid things that I've said down through the years. And, you know, I'll, I'll readily admit to that, Pete, but I would also hope when everything is said and done, that I will be judged based on the entirety of the body of my work, not one or two moments yeah. of slips of, of good judgment. So let's take Lincoln, for example. So it is suggested that he no longer be honored uh, by having his namesake on Lincoln High School, uh, but rather be vilified because of the uh, apparent slight of the way he handled or had relationships with Native Americans. That whole Emancipation Proclamation, free right. the slaves, keep the union together business, that, that, that kind of pales in comparison to this greater sin. So, so then suddenly we're, we're, we're looking at historical figures through this, this myopic microscope that yep. suggests one false move and that's it, we erase you. And that's, and that's another part of this, right, Craig, which is, is it's not as if we're learning something new necessarily about these figures. We've decided to prioritize individual aspects of their past, whether, whether true or not in some of these cases, uh, in ways that we're not willing to do with other aspects. You re very well 
and rightly mentioned, somebody like a Roosevelt. Again, a great hero, particularly to those on the left. But at the same time, we have the history of Japanese internment. We have other issues and practices that were carried out in World War II. Uh, we have a variety of things that could be raised, but I think we all, as Americans, rightly praise Roosevelt for the many good things that he did. And so this inability to understand people, human beings as complex people, uh, and especially like a Lincoln who endured so much, <laughs> really amazing, um, you know, that we can't put into context some of these issues with the greatness of some of these Americans, I think really is, is something that, uh, that hollows out our understanding of history and humanity. It does, and, and it demonstrates um, not only an appalling lack of understanding of the, the complexities and totality of how we measure history, but a huge, in my opinion, a huge public policy failing where even even the mayor of San Francisco has said, you know, th this is our priority right now where, where kids are not going to school and haven't for nearly a year yeah. because of COVID-19. And instead of focusing on dealing with those shortcomings, uh, we've got the school board focusing on whether or not Lincoln's name should be chiseled off the side of the building and ignoring the fact that it could be argued he gave his life for the sake of the Union. We probably wouldn't have a country today if it wasn't for men like Abraham Lincoln, and yet we're so rapid now to want to pull out the, the, uh, the chisel and, as they say, tear his name off the side of the building. How do we respond to this, and, and what are future generations, not only the message that this generation is sending to them, but how do we right this horrific wrong? What changes need to be placed into the, into the thinking process of those that are involved in public policy making to understand just how potentially dangerous all of this could be? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to take, frankly, a, a Christian worldview on this. Uh, and, and how does that fit in here? It fits in here by understanding that we are all fallen creatures, and at the same time, we should be very humble about the decisions we make and ways in which we judge, judge others. These are judgments that are being made, in this case, by the school board. And so are we willing to, to judge ourselves by those same standards, A, and B, aren't we just setting up a system whereby in another 10 or 15 years, all the new names that have now been put on these 44 schools, we're now going to have to look at another, uh, get out the chisels once again, to chisel out names again. And so this, again, this inability to use that more eternal perspective as to what we're doing, but also to treat humbly ourselves, but also our judgments on others and on history, I really think is the only way forward here. It really calls upon each and every one of us um, to take a stand. And you're right, to be willing to be judged by the same yardstick by which we measure others. And I think also the need for uh, people of good conscience, people of faith, 
to be involved in the public square, in the public arena, and not just sit back and allow elected officials to kind of foist their agenda on all of us, but rather to have a voice, not only in terms of the elective and voting process, but also a voice in the shaping of public policy moving forward. And that's an arena where people of faith and values can can certainly shine, and a great place in order to sort of perfect those skills as you potentially seek a career in the shaping of public policy is a place like the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And uh, Pete, I would be amiss if I didn't ask you for at least 30 seconds to give us a quick snapshot for people eavesdropping on our conversation right now that are as appalled by this move by the San Francisco Unified School District as we are and say, I want to learn how I can make a difference. How can going to the Pepperdine School of Public Policy help shape their ability to do just that? Well, Craig, it starts with our unique curriculum here. This is a Master of Public Policy program, but it balances the uh, classes in policy analysis with America's founding principles. And I think that's so important to understand the importance of America's founding principles for today. Absolutely so. And, of course, if folks want to get more information about the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, either for yourself or maybe a a student in the family uh, for whom you think this kind of education and the calling to engage in the forming of public policy in the future uh, is, is something that they're really being drawn to, then let me urge you to get more information. Go online to publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, for joining us on the program tonight. 521, let's get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you think about global disasters or regional disasters down through recent memory, be it Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, the earthquake and tsunami in Indonesia, in all of these cases, criminals have never met a human crisis they were not willing to take advantage of whether it's soliciting donations for relief charities that don't exist, redirecting donated emergency supplies for sale on the black market, to looting the goods of businesses and homes in disaster areas, there seems to be no limit to exactly how far they're willing to go. In the wake of the current crisis globally, the COVID-19 crisis, I suspect if there was any sense of a silver lining in same, it might be the notion that in the middle of all of this, with people sheltering in place and staying at home and the necessary mandated uh, reduction in human contact, that hopefully, prayerfully, we'd see a equal reduction in human trafficking. After all, with so many of us in lockdown, modern-day slave trade must have at least slowed down, if not stalled altogether, right? Well, if that's what you think, you'd be wrong. If anything, the global pandemic has only heightened the desperation of those at risk, deepened the cunning of traffickers, and created even greater degrees of pain and suffering for people that are most vulnerable in society and the world today. To help us better understand what's going on here, and most importantly, how we as believers can and should be doing something, we're joined by the founder and director of Gospel for Asia, Pastor K.P. Yohannan. And K.P., is always a privilege to have you join us. Thank you, Craig. It's um, so glad for the opportunity to be with you and talk to our people. 
I was uh, quite frankly shocked when I read this recent report that was released by Gospel for Asia uh, that really zeroes in on what's happened in the wake of COVID-19. We know certainly untold millions of people have lost their lives. The decimation of businesses has been horrific. But the one story that we're not hearing is how people in desperate circumstances who still need to eat, who still need to uh, care for their children, um, are either being taken advantage of directly or are succumbing to the, um, the pressure, so to speak, brought to bear by those in human trafficking, essentially taking advantage of people when they are most vulnerable in the middle of this crisis. Yeah, Craig, you know, the the way you introduced um, this segment um, is brilliant. And I, I was just listening every word you said um, that um, such a evil, um, horrific, um, um, you know, crisis in the world, COVID-19, um, is used uh, to further uh, bring so much pain and agony uh, for innocent people like women and girls. You know, it is um, public information that um, um, up to 30 million um, women or girls are slaves in the world today. And the sad thing is four out of five of this are um, women and um, girls. Um, you know, something that I never could imagine or understand uh, when I read a story in the newspaper uh, some years ago, three, four years ago, in um, uh, one of the poor nations uh, in Asia, like Nepal, a um, mother was willing to sell her own child to find uh, 10, 15 kilograms of rice uh, because of starvation they were faced with. Um, and these are... Um, and I say, okay, in a coronavirus problem is 5%. 95% is starvation. And, um, you know, some 100,000 uh, children live on the streets by begging in some of these uh, mega cities in South Asia. And the lockdown created no one on the street. And where do these people go uh, to find something to eat and that's desperate and this is where these pins these evil uh, people uh, recruit these um, boys and girls and uh, maintain kidnap them and sell them uh, for um, you know, abuse and all kind of things and um, you know sex exploitation uh, is very very serious and it's 150 billion dollar business in the world today and uh, now like countries like you know Myanmar and Nepal and you know Sri Lanka and some of these countries, um, you know uh, Philippines. Um, now it some somebody said it's almost doubled the number of um, you know um, human trafficking during this uh, one year of uh, coronavirus uh, crisis. You know, the irony is here in the first world, in the United States, we talk much about the need for additional relief packages. People are going on unemployment, things of this sort, uh, the stress on the social uh, system here in America to help people manage their way through the crisis. 
But, Bishop Hannon, there are so many people in so many parts of the world, the vast majority, I might add, that live in countries that provide no real, true, so-called safety net for them. If they lose a job, they've lost a job. If they're told they're no longer able to work because of either illness or the potentiality of the spread of COVID-19, that's it. It's over with. There's no check coming in from the government. Uh, there's nobody that's going to ride into town, you know, with the, the, the guy in the white hat on the white horse to save the day. It just simply means that a situation that was probably pretty bad for them to begin with is now guaranteed to get significantly worse. And, and the tragic loss here of not just dignity, but the loss of human life that attends to all of this. And sadly, as we've mentioned, the ability of criminals to take advantage of all of this really means that things like sex trafficking, slave trade, the modern day slave trade, if anything, has has seen a significant boost, as you indicate. Yeah, you know, as it says in Second Timothy chapter three, the the evil and, and and the horrific darkness only increasing as the Lord's coming is closer. But here's the thing: as people of God, as you said very well, Craig, you know, we as people of God um, should uh, always think about not just our country or our community, but the whole world, for God so loved the world. And um, especially in many of these countries, uh, like, you know, China or, you know, the subcontinent, India with 1.3 billion people. Um, okay, if you have a job, you're losing it. But now you, people can find this out. Average income of people when they have daily jobs or whatever, it is $2.50. Um, some uh, dollar and 40 cents daily wages and multiplied millions upon millions of people who live by daily uh, labor's job, now they have nothing to do. So what do they do? The suicide rate increased drastically um, because people have no work, no way to feed uh, their families. And this is where I think, uh, you know, Jesus said, you know, I was hungry, I was uh, naked, and I was in prison, I was helpless, and you cared for me. Okay, Jesus was talking about his disciples for sure, but there's a larger reality of the helpless where the people of God should feel. I don't think Americans or Canadians or our people should feel guilty or horrible about the blessings and the uh, clean water we have and the roads we have and the food and air-conditioned homes. I don't think we should feel guilty about it, but what we should realize, God has blessed us and, and been kind to us and because we are now representing this loving God to the suffering and the poor in the world. And I always said this, Craig, one of the reasons God has been so merciful to the people of America is because I do not know any country in the world in history that people are so kind and generous and and giving and loving. Even the enemies, they help. And I think the church is much more uh, stronger if they understand we are here to be Christ witness in our generation and practical ways, praying and giving our resources to help the poor and needy. And we have so many cases, Craig, of actually paying money to these pimps some places and buy these boys and girls back and put them in school. Um, and, and prostitutes, not too long ago, one of the mega cities, we were able to rescue 130 women living in the cages. These 
uh, abused uh, for prostitution. And uh, thank God for the police that helped us, that we were able to rescue them. And many of them had children and put them in school. And see, what a beautiful thing it is that we can have this kind of opportunity, not a burden. Uh, That's what Gospel for Asia, GFA is trying to do like this. You know, coronavirus season, over a thousand congregations were involved day and night, even today, cooking food, distributing food and um, medicine, all kinds of things, because people are starving and, and, and helpless. And there are many organizations doing that. We are not the only ones, but um, with our um, being on the ground there in all these countries, we are able to do it immediately without losing time. Well, and not only that, but also the ability to not only address the immediate, urgent, felt needs, but then the larger, more long-term, more eternal needs from a spiritual dynamic. And we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out, because at the end of the day, when we are seeing so many levels of humanity confronted by the fragility of life and, and our own mortality, therein lies a job that only the church can do to bring the hope of the gospel into that vacuum. And um, that's the kind of life-changing power that the gospel brings if we'll only be willing to bring it. Bishop K.P. Yohannan, the founder and director of Gospel for Asia, with us on this segment of Lifeline. A brief timeout. We'll get back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. COVID-19 over the last year has claimed millions of victims, many that we read about, but still many more that we don't read about. And as we're learning from our guest in this segment of the program, Bishop K.P. Yohannan, the founder and director of Gospel for Asia, uh, upwards of 40 million people across the globe, even here in America, are dealing with the crushing burden of being sex slaves, even small goods manufacturing slaves in some countries. And many of these people forced and coerced into this out of desperation or threats and now feel as if they have no choice. And and sadly, the level of abuse, as we're seeing the horrific exploitation, KP, of, of young children, young adults, sometimes children as, as young as six and seven years old, that are being pulled into this. I mean, this is really the most vile aspect of the human trafficking uh, situation in the world today. And of course, the big question is, how can we as Christians proactively, in addition to prayer, of course, how can we be proactively making a difference? And how can we partner with organizations like Gospel for Asia, whom, as you point out, is already working in these con- many of these countries, boots on the ground, capable of not only helping to address some of the felt needs, but most importantly, to address the spiritual needs as well? So, you know, sometimes we forget, you know, that the scripture in uh, St. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the only purpose Satan and demons have is to destroy the lives of people and, um, you know, finish them. And Jesus said, but I have come to give life and life abundant. And when you really think about it, God did not create um, COVID-19 or all these um, massive starvation and crisis. It is satanic forces 
that are at war to destroy uh, mankind and, um, and 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 do all the damage. But ultimately, Craig, you know, I can tell you after 40 years of my traveling through so many nations and 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 helping to uh, spread the love of Christ, the real answer uh, is the gospel, the uh, the the Lord Jesus Christ, because. you know like the woman who came to jesus double bent over she could not stand up and we would say take her to the hospital and have a surgery done but jesus said loose her let her go it was a demons holding her captive and these uh, millions of young girls and women are abused and sold and killed by these evil people okay if if one man come to christ if one woman come to christ their family their community everything changes and that's the reason why the apostles when they went about of course they cared for the poor and the needy whatever we could do the church always did it but also never forget you know uh, the lord jesus is the only ultimate hope and answer and even when we feed in the poor asking these girls like we have done it so many times paying money to these people and buying these uh, people back and and give them freedom and um, teach them Uh, some kind of trade so that um, they are able to make a living and not to be slaves anymore and this is where our prayers are there our financial help is needed and whatever we can do uh, and people like gfa um, you know we can do so much more right now if only we had the resources to do it and i don't say you know we are dying despite this and that but it's an opportunity god giving us to say not to a lot of stuff we want and share those resources with people that could find hope in christ uh, through uh, receiving some help and rescuing them from this kind of slavery and um, we have some 700 uh, sisters you know they look like mother teresa's sisters and they're trained well for 3 years to work among these um, suffering people and red light districts and leper colonies um, in these nations and what we need is people not only to understand this and to be part of it because all our life we are to live in the light of eternity uh, here we are for few years and i would plead with people if they would go to uh, gfa.org uh, or gfa.org/press they can get all the information free and a book Uh, we'll send them free without any obligation to understand what is going on so they can pray intelligently and do whatever they can yeah you know we we all can't get into an airplane and uh, go into the field as though perhaps our heart might be leading us to do something like that uh but we all can be praying and we can all certainly stand with organizations like gospel for asia that as uh, brother kp yohannan mentions has been working in many of these nations for decades now they have the channels of distribution they have the infrastructure they have the the workforce the volunteers um and and certainly they have they have the ability to be effective because they're they're not outsiders coming in and so they can come in um to be able to bring not only relief but most importantly uh to bring the hope of the gospel to so many that are suffering in so many parts of the world and uh, again we would encourage you to be in prayer for the work of gospel for asia and then in any form and fashion in which you can uh, substantially stand with this ministry uh, i'll mention again the website as kp mentioned just a moment ago it's simply gfa.org think 
Gospel for Asia, G-F-A dot O-R-G. There is a report available, too, uh, that reveals what's going on with COVID-19 and this horrific um, spike in in exploitation of young children in uh, sex trafficking and slave trade. You need to be aware of it. You need to be praying about it. You need to be standing with organizations that are doing something about it. Again, information online at G-F-A dot O-R-G. That's G-F-A dot O-R-G. Our thanks to Bishop K.P. Yohannan, the founder and director of Gospel for Asia, for joining us with that report. Ten minutes away from six o'clock. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So I made reference to this at the top of the program tonight, and if you were paying close attention, you, you might, have, might have even put your foot through the floorboard of the car if you're uh, heading home tonight. Uh, the fact that here in America today, we have unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who over the last 20 years alone have put more than 88,000 rules and regulations on the books that you and I have to run our businesses by, live our lives by every single day. None of these people are in elected positions directly accountable to the people, many of whom just are in there doing a job. Maybe Congress passes a law. Somebody says, okay, um, your agency is going to carry out this law. The agency goes about putting into place rules and regulations going around and supporting the law. And suddenly we've got this monster. And uh, this is a monster that, of course, has not only literally choked the life out of business across America, particularly in states like California, but to which apparently there is no end in sight. Now, let me quickly tell you that back in 2019 in October, then-President Trump signed an executive order to essentially attempt the first attempt at reining in unaccountable bureaucrats. And then as recently as uh, two days before uh, the end of his term, he signed the executive order on ensuring democratic accountability in agency rulemaking. Sounds good, but will it stand? Can it actually make a difference? We're joined now by the director of the Pacific Legal Foundation Center for the Separation of Powers, Todd Gaziano. Todd, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And, And while certainly... I I applaud the president in the attempt to try and rein some of these uh, people in. But I got to wonder, when when I do the count here, I find that there are more than 44 different rulemaking agencies across the federal government, everything from the IRS, the FDA, the FAA, Department of Conference, Department of Forestry, the FCC, on and on the list goes, 44 all told responsible for these nearly 90,000 rules and regulations over the last 20 years. How do we unravel all this? Can it actually be done with a simple executive order? Those are great questions. And my short answer is that a simple executive order isn't going to solve the whole problem, but it's a good start. Um, My first thought about the number of agencies, uh, the late Justice Scalia used to call regulatory agencies junior varsity congresses. You know, in our Constitution, congresses ought to make the law, but too often they, they delegate rulemaking authority. But the, but the executive order you mentioned, um, issued on January 18, at least requires Senate, you know, politically appointed 
um, presidential and uh, officers, we'd like to think of them as Senate-confirmed presidential um, officials, must sign off on the rules. So it, it at least can't be the career bureaucrats who stay on for years and years and build their nests and, and, and increase the agency power. At least now, it has to be someone who's answerable to the democratic process. And that's, that's a step in the right direction. Though certainly, if we take all of these regulations, nearly 90,000 in total, each one on face value, I'm sure many that we could pick apart. And, you know, how many of us have heard about some new regulation that's come about in interaction with any one of these alphabet soup agencies, Todd, where we go, well, wait a minute, I don't remember voting for that, or I can't believe that insert name of congressman, senator, governor here would actually sign a law into uh, you know uh, into power that would codify something like that this is absolutely ridiculous and i guess that's where suddenly we begin to realize that quite often some of the most egregious regulations that control each and every one of our daily lives were in fact put into place by people that have no accountability to the people that they serve whatsoever absolutely well i will if if your listeners don't mind um there was a wall street journal op-ed that i and my co-author Angela Erickson uh, published, Todd Gaziano and, and Angela Erickson, um, on our role in, in ringing the alarm bell on this. No one noticed who was issuing these rules or what authority the people issuing the rules before a few years ago when Pacific Legal Foundation um, filed its first lawsuit and did a study of how many of these rules were issued by career bureaucrats. And that's what started the process. And after three years of suing and, and, and you know, we had a hearing by Rand Paul on, in the Senate, and, and finally we reached the White House, and, and, and the logic of it made sense. Well, at least we should put an end to the un, unnamed career bureaucrats writing laws that, that bind us, because that's what regulations are. At a, at a minimum, it should be people who are accountable uh, to the president, and we think it should go one step further. We think it should only be Senate-confirmed officials who are responsible to both branches who should finalize rules. And, and of course, part of the, the, the challenge there is that we've seen operating, e even over recent years, uh, so many so-called acting officials that, in fact, are not Senate confirmed. I mean, the, even the outgoing administration uh, at, at the end of President Trump's term had 15 unconfirmed acting positions. So these people kind of, you know, s slip in on a temporary basis. The one before them resigned for whatever reason. Somebody has to fill that role. So a, a temporary appointment is made that can go on for weeks, months before there's ever any confirmation. Some have even made it to a year, and finally we realize, wait a minute, how is he handing down these regulations when he hasn't even been officially confirmed? And I would wonder toward that end, Todd, is there any possibility of doing a, um, what should we call it, a line-by-line a, a -line audit to actually see what regulations were put in place where and by whom, and whether or not they even had, as you're suggesting, the the authority under the law to to put such rules and regulations in place. I, I would suspect that we could wipe a lot of nonsense off the books pretty easily uh, just by weeding out those uh, that come under that um, sort of category, no? 
Right. Well, we're asking the Supreme Court to review the rulemaking in one such agency, but we did a study, which my co-author Angela Erickson was the lead author of uh, in that Wall Street Journal op-ed on Monday, and, and your listeners can probably find a link to it. And we looked at just Health and Human Services for 17 years. We found thousands of rules. We know exactly which ones were issued by people who were unconstitutionally not authorized to issue rules. And that's just one agency. But I should say part of the good news of the executive order is it requires the agencies to do a review and to report in a certain number of months to the head of OMB. So our op-ed was mostly explaining to Biden why he had to keep this rule, why it was constitutionally necessary. Let's hope he understands that. Let's hope even if he wants to overregulate, that at least he wants to do it in the constitutional way, or, or it'll be to his detriment, because we at the Pacific Legal Foundation, we love to sue the government. That's all we exist to do. And, and we've given him a warning and if he doesn't keep this order in place and he doesn't enforce it, we are delighted to continue to sue until the unconstitutional rulemaking stops. Well, it really is the broader sense of a system of checks and balances now, isn't it? I mean, we, we typically think of that in terms of the three branches of government. But at the end of the day, the founding fathers weren't foolish. They were very intentional in that power in a Republican uh, a democracy such as ours flows not from the top down, but rather from the bottom up. And so to suggest for even a moment that people that are not accountable to the people who are in positions of power that are essentially wantingly able to create any rule or regulation they so desire and put it in place, have it enforced by the federal government or state government and have absolutely no accountability back to the people whatsoever. I mean, that just is not the way we we do business. That isn't the way the founding fathers wished that we do business. And I would suspect if you really had had the opportunity um, to, you know, you hate to see it have to come through the court system, but, you know, be it as it may, you, you, I think it would be astonishing to all of us uh, to peel back the layers of this onion and really fully capture the totality of just how much um, extra constitutional nonsense has gone on here. And this is not to suggest it's, it's uh, you know, the administration of the last uh, uh, 8, 12, uh, 30 years. I mean, this has been going on for decades, hasn't it? it? It absolutely has. But one of your other points is absolutely right. The separation of powers wasn't just for the benefit of the three branches. It was clearly, and the framers were, were explicit about this in their debates, for the benefit of the people. So if they won't follow the separation of powers, it's incumbent upon us to do what's necessary. And, you know, our method at the Pacific Legal Foundation is to sue, and we're happy to do so. But we're even happier if they'll issue an order like this to stop. And as long as Biden keeps it and Biden enforces it, and we suggested, like you said, that it could even be improved to eliminate these acting officers, then we've made a big stride. It's not the end of the problem, as you said, but it's a big stride toward making rulemaking more accountable to the people.
Well, you get a, certainly a hearty hear here from my corner, and I suspect uh, the vast majority of my listeners as well. Todd, we're going to have to have you back on again because the, the broader topic of separation of powers uh, is one that certainly has been in the news a lot, and I think it bears close inspection by every American that cares. Uh, cares how the government is run, cares that it's run uh, within the confines of the framework established by our founding fathers so that everybody gets a fair shake. And I'd love to have you back on again. Uh, Todd Gaziano is, again, the director of the Pacific Legal Foundation Center for the Separation of Powers. More information available about his and the organization's good work online at pacificlegal.org. That's pacificlegal.org. 605 from KFAX. Let's get you caught up on some traffic.